This morning we're looking particularly at Ephesians 5, verses 3 to 7. This is part of a broader section where Paul is talking about what does the new life look like? What does the new self look like? What do we have to put off? What is the old self that we have to put off? What is the new self that we have to put on? What does it look like to be imitators of God? What does it look like to walk in love? What do we have to put off if we're going to be people that walk in love? What do we need to avoid if we're going to be people that walk in love? He's talking about a whole bunch of things in this broader section of Scripture. But what is in view, particularly in verses 3 to 7 of Ephesians chapter 5, is sexuality. So this morning we're looking at the subject of saints and sexuality. Two assumptions that Paul makes in this passage are first, that we know what saints are. And secondly, that we know what sexual immorality is. He doesn't define either of those terms. So for our purposes this morning, let's just briefly talk about those two things. A saint is just a Christian. Some people have this view that saints are a subset of Christians. As if all saints are necessarily Christians by definition, but not necessarily all Christians are saints. Some people have a view kind of like that, where the saints are sort of like the upper echelon of Christians. And so Paul is saying not necessarily that it's improper for Christians to indulge a little bit in sexual immorality, but saints, if you want to be a saint, you can't indulge in sexual immorality. That's not at all what what Paul is saying. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2, we have the clearest explanation here of what a saint is, I think, in the whole scripture. It says, Paul writes, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So, all who in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, are called to be saints. So saint is just a Christian. It's just a biblical word for a Christian. So when Paul says in verse 3 that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, he's saying that it's not proper among Christians. So that's just a point of clarification. Lest anyone be confused on that point. The second thing that Paul assumes is that we know what sexual immorality is. He just says, sexual immorality is not proper among you. He doesn't really explain in this context what sexual immorality is. It's really simple though. The biblical ethic is that sexuality is good. It's a good thing. It was given to the human race by God as a good gift. Sexuality is good, like fire is good. But sexuality is, or can be, ever since the fall, also dangerous, like fire. Fire belongs in the right place, and so does sexuality. The right context, the right parameter, the fireplace for sexuality, if you will, is a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Sexuality is rightly expressed in that, within those parameters. 
Outside of that, you could use your imagination. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. So we don't need to go and define every possible way of sexual immorality. Is it sexual intimacy, self-giving love, care, concern, respect, uh, honoring one another in body and soul between one man and one woman within the context of a marriage relationship? If so, okay, great. It's a good thing. It's a gift from God. If not, it is a misuse or an abuse of God's gift and it's sexual immorality. So those are just two points of clarification as we begin. So the teaching of the passage before us this morning at a high level is simply this. Saints do not misuse or abuse God's good gift of sexuality. Saints are thankful for God's good gift of sexuality. That's the big idea here in this passage before us. Saints do not misuse or abuse God's good gift of sexuality. Saints are thankful for God's good gift of sexuality. So first we're going to look at what this passage is not doing. And then secondly we're going to look at what this passage is doing. And then we're going to come to a couple of applications about that. So firstly, this passage is not about how to become a saint. How do you become a Christian? It's talking not about how to become a Christian. It's talking about how people who are Christians should behave. And so the absolute wrong and backwards thing to do would be to read this section and be like, oh, well, sexuality is not proper among saints. Well, therefore, if I want to become a saint, I need to stop indulging in sexual immorality. That would be to divorce this section of Scripture from its wider context. Now certainly, if you want to become a saint, you do need to stop indulging in sexual immorality. That's part of what we call repentance, turning away from sin and turning toward Christ. So becoming a saint is not less than turning away from sexual immorality, but it is more than turning away from sexual immorality. Ephesians 2 verse 8 tells us very clearly, this is how you become a saint. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You want to become a Christian? You need to put faith in Christ Jesus. Jesus who came and lived a life of perfect righteousness that you did not nor could not have lived. Faith that His righteousness will cover your unrighteousness in God's eyes, as it were. That when God looks at you, He will no longer see filth, but He will see cleanliness, spotlessness, perfection, because you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Faith in Christ Jesus that His death on the cross serves as atonement for your sins. That there's no possible way that you can work off This debt that you owe to God, that you can somehow pacify God's wrath towards you in any other way, but relying solely and completely upon Christ's death on the cross. That when Jesus died, the wrath of God that you deserved to bear in yourself for your sin was laid upon Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus and together with that faith, repentance, turning away from sin toward Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus is how you become 
a Christian. And it says, by grace through faith. Faith is not sort of a good work that you do that outweighs all the bad things that you do. So there's this balance of justice and you've got all these bad things here. Ah, yes, but you have faith. And that outweighs all the bad things. Faith is not this work that you do in order to impress God or in, in order to become good enough in God's eyes. Some have said faith is the empty hand that takes hold of Christ. Faith is not a meritorious work in God's eyes. Faith is grabbing hold of the meritorious one, Christ Jesus. And trusting that though we have no merit, nothing in our hands to bring, if we simply cling to Christ's cross, that shall be enough. And we will be saved on the merit of Christ. So that's how you become a saint. You don't become a saint simply by turning away from sexual immorality. A lot of people conceive wrongly of the Christian life and they look at the imperatives in Scripture. Stuff like the back half of Ephesians chapters 4 to 6 and they read through that and they think, okay, well that's what a Christian is. That's what I should act like. And so they try to act like that and then they think that they're Christians. But they've, they've missed the fact that you don't become a saint by acting like a saint. You act like a saint because you are a saint. And this is, you might think that that's just semantics or it's just this small issue, but it's the difference between duct taping, taking some duct tape and duct taping apples on a coconut tree or an apple tree bearing apples. It's a very different thing. An apple tree has apples, but you don't make an apple tree by taping apples onto any sort of tree that you wish. And so it's not a small, it's a subtle distinction, especially for people who are, who are unfamiliar with the Scripture. They might not have really thought about it in such terms. But we produce fruit from the root, as opposed to trying to change the root by changing the fruit. That's a very different thing. So it's like saying soldiers wear camouflage and carry guns. Well, therefore, I want to be a soldier, so I'm going to wear camouflage and carry a gun. Well, go into town this week wearing camouflage and carrying a gun and see how it works out for you. You're going to end up in Dodds. You don't become a soldier by wearing camouflage and carrying a gun, even though soldiers wear camouflage and carry guns. You don't become a Christian by stopping indulging in sexual immorality, even though Christians do stop indulging in sexual immorality. So we've got to get that... Right, we've got to keep this gospel context before our eyes so that it's not like three months of gospel as we preach through Ephesians 1 to 3, and then three months of moralism as we preach through Ephesians 4 to 6. We've got to, we've got to keep this gospel framework even as we take seriously these imperatives of Scripture, and even as we try to figure out how do we live as Christians? What is the right way to live? The Christian life is more than simply justification, how to be made right with God. But we can't, we can't afford to lose sight of the gospel context of sanctification. So with that uh, clarified that this passage is not, uh, not about how to become a saint, let's move on to talk about well, what, this, what is this passage about? This passage is about how saints must behave. Particularly, as I've already said, this passage is saying that sexual immorality is inappropriate for Christians. The acts of sexual immorality, lesser or greater, 
are inappropriate for Christians. Impurity is, as I said earlier in the service, merely an expansion for clarification of extent. If Paul had just said sexual immorality is not proper among saints, you know how our sinful hearts work. We would say, okay, well, sleeping with somebody who you're not married to is not proper among saints. But a a little bit of lustful thoughts here and there are not a big deal. So Paul goes on to expand. He says sexual immorality and all impurity. Right? He's, he's broadening the extent here that lest, lest we be reductionistic about this command of sexual immorality. The acts of sexual immorality, lesser or greater, are inappropriate for Christians. So not just hopping into bed with someone that you're not married to, but any degree of impurity sexually is inappropriate for Christians. So this goes all the way from outright fornication or adultery, or worse, down to pornography use, down to the lustful thoughts of our hearts and our minds, the whole spectrum of lustful acts, uh, sinful sexual acts are out of bounds for Christians. So how can we avoid sexual actions? And in view right now, right now, I'm just talking about actions. We'll come to heart motives and stuff in a bit, but how can we avoid sinful sexual actions? Well, for one thing, um, though this is not the full picture and I'll explain as I go, but I do want to advocate for the adoption of a modified, uh, a modified adoption of what has become known as the Billy Graham rule or the Mike Pence rule. Right? Mike Pence took a lot of heat recently for saying he's not going to have dinner with anyone that's not his wife. Right? Billy Graham has been doing that for decades. Right? He won't be alone with any woman that he's not married to. Um, that's what, so I'm going to call it the Billy Graham or the Mike Pence rule as we go. All right? This has drawn some criticism. For example, there's a, an American pastor named Ty Grigg. I don't know who he is, but he's cited in the Wikipedia article on the Billy Graham rule, so he must be an authority on such things. He said, he said the rule has framed relating with the opposite sex with fear. When the other gender is kept at a distance, there is less chance for mutual respect and trust to grow. Our fear and, di- and distancing diminish mutual respect and create the kind of environment where inappropriate relating is more likely to occur. So I, th- I think if I understand correctly, and that's, that's just a quote from, his, from a broader article, I think if I understand Griggs' concern rightly, I think what he's saying is that the rule is predicated on viewing the opposite sex as, as sexual objects. And that if we think of the opposite sex in these ways, then we're actually more likely and not less likely to sin with the opposite sex. And so I think he's advocating for a deeper change, even in terms of the way that we think about the opposite sex, that we would stop thinking about people of the opposite sex as a threat, uh, as a sexual threat or a sexual danger or something like this. So I think, I think that's basically what he's saying. <clears throat> and he's right about the way men must think about women or the way that women should think about men. That we shouldn't relate to one another in a fear-based way 
uh, as if the other sex is merely a potential problem, as an object of lust. And the more that we can keep the men with the men and the women with the women, the less problems we're going to have. Um, all men and all women are image bearers of God and ought to be treated with respect. Christian men and Christian women are even more than that to one another. We're actually brothers and sisters in Christ. And so in addition to just the way we ought to treat every man and woman with respect as an image bearer of God, especially those within the church, we ought to recognize these are our brothers and sisters. They're not sexual objects. They're people and we've got to treat them with dignity and with respect and so forth. We should value one another and across the gender line for our inherent worth, uh, for opinions and perspectives of the opposite gender that might not come as naturally to us. So Grig is absolutely right when he says that we shouldn't adopt the Billy Graham or the Mike Pence rule based on a wrong view of women that sees them as a potential problem to be avoided. However, Grigg is wrong in assuming that a wrong view of women is the motivation behind every man's adoption of the Billy Graham rule. Sometimes behind what is behind an adoption of this rule is not a wrong view of the opposite sex, but a right view of ourselves. We, as men, ought to be obedient to the Scriptures, and as 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, be careful if we think we stand, lest we fall. And that goes both ways, men and women alike. We are in a most vulnerable position when we begin to think that we are immune to the temptation of sexual immorality. So sometimes it's not a wrong view of the opposite sex, but a right view of ourselves that just makes us be cautious and adopt a rule in our own lives that will decrease the probability of us falling into a particular sin. Many of of you have heard me say that we need to be wide where the Bible is wide, and narrow where the Bible's narrow. What I mean by that is we don't want to impose extra biblical rules on one another. Things like if somebody, somebody chooses to have a glass of wine with a meal and somebody doesn't. Somebody chooses to get a tattoo and somebody doesn't. Somebody wants to wear a tie to church and somebody else doesn't. These sorts of things are not things that the scripture speaks directly to. These are things that people have opinions about. These are people, things that um, are worth thinking through, but people may land in different issues and we don't want to be rigid and impose things upon one another that the Bible has not imposed upon one another. And certainly, certainly, the Billy Graham or the Mike Pence rule is a non-biblical imperative. You're not going to go find that anywhere in Scripture. You just won't. And in fact, you're going to find counterexamples. Jesus himself was alone with the Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus appeared after his resurrection alone to Mary in the garden. So, we have to allow for exceptions. However, the Bible is not so wide on this issue that it refrains from instructing us to use caution and use wisdom in this area. For example, Proverbs 5.8, in Proverbs 5.8, a father instructs his son to keep your way far from her, that is a forbidden woman or a promiscuous woman, and do not go near the door of her house. Now, admittedly, he's talking about a promiscuous woman and not, for instance, a godly sister in Christ. But what is particularly interesting and relevant for our discussion here is that that section of Scripture doesn't rest the danger factor in the woman, 
but actually in the man's own vulnerability. Go read it on your own time. After Proverbs 5.8, where he says, keep your way far from her door, it goes on to say that the man would regret it if he sinned with her, saying to himself, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. So it's making an assumption about the son's character that means that the son should take into account his own character and make sure that he steers far clear. Right? So it is his sinfulness and immaturity that was the major risk factor, not her promiscuity. And so the father warns the son to take that into account and just steer clear of her house altogether. So in any case, that's just one example. But I think if you look at the scripture, there are warnings cautions about sexual immorality so we don't want to be so rigid as to say it's an absolute rule and breaking the billy graham rules is sin but we at the same time we do want to adopt wise and cautious ways of relating to one another now as a illustration and somewhat of a counterpoint to the billy graham rule I want to give you two exceptions that I've made to the Billy Graham rule or the Mike Pence rule in my own life. One, one time when I was truck driving, I used to drive long haul across North America and I was in Winnipeg, which is probably about a 24-hour drive from my home. And my truck broke down and it was the middle of winter and it was probably about 35, minus 35 degrees Celsius in Winnipeg. And... Um, I was parked in it overnight. It had a a couple of beds in it because I was a long haul driver. So my truck had beds behind the driver's seat. And so I was sleeping. My doors were locked. The truck was running so that I could stay warm. And in the middle of the night, I hear a knock on the door of my truck. And I open it up and it's a prostitute. So I said, I was like, no, I'm not interested. She's like, She's like, I'm actually, she's like, I'm actually just waiting for a ride, but it's so cold out here. I'm, I'm freezing. And she was scantily clad, and it was like minus 35. So on the one hand, I could say, well, the Billy Graham rule, <laughs> right? On the other hand, I could say, well, this would be a very loving thing to do for a young lady who needs uh, some shelter on a cold night, right? Now, what would be, well, most of the time, what would be a stupider thing than taking a prostitute into a private place in the middle of the night. Obviously, generally speaking, that would be a very dumb thing to do. But in that particular situation, I made an exception. Another exception that I made was I was driving um, a couple hours from one place to the next. And in a rural area, there was a, a really beautiful young lady hitchhiking. So again... I thought to myself, well, on one hand, the Billy Graham rule, but on the other hand, it just seems kind of unloving and irresponsible to leave her to get picked up by goodness knows who. So she was like, this was probably when I was like 20, 21, and she was probably like 17 or 18 or something. So again, under many circumstances, probably not a wise idea to drive around with a good-looking young lady, but in that circumstance... And actually, very recently, in that, very, in that same area of Ontario, there had been a case where um, there had been um, a sexual um, predator 
who had just recently been brought to justice, but he was, he was actually a major, sorry, I might be getting his title wrong, but he was, he was a ranking officer in the military, and nobody suspected him of it. And so I took the opportunity to pick her up, and I talked to her about it's not safe, and it's, not, it's kind of dangerous. And like I talked about this man, Russell Williams, and I said, listen, like if you would have got, if you would have got picked up, if, so, if a military man pulled over in his uniform, with all the stars and stuff, you would probably trust him and get in his car, right? But then look at what has happened in this area, right? So it's not safe. You see what I mean? So I dropped her off. In both of those circumstances, I would do the same thing again. You understand what I'm saying? We want to be wide where the Bible's wide. We want to be narrow where the Bible's narrow. I'm not trying to impose a hard and fast rule, but I am saying probably very few babies were conceived out of wedlock in a public place. You see what I mean? Probably, probably very few pastors disqualified themselves from ministry in the church because of sexual relations in a public place. You understand what I'm saying? There's just some wisdom here that if you don't put yourself in a certain situation, it's much less likely you're decreasing the probability that bad things are going to happen, right? So... I just, want, I just want to exercise, I just want to encourage us to exercise just some practical wisdom too, that we don't need to sort of over-spiritualize the Christian life as if it's like, well, I just trust the Holy Spirit and throw caution to the wind. We just go about our lives carelessly, recklessly, you know, indulging in whatever temptation, walking as close to the fence as we can and so on and so forth. That's just a foolish way to live. It's a stupid way to live, right? And you can apply sort of a modified Billy Graham rule or a Mike Pence rule to even, the, even pornography use, right? Or even, even just avoiding lust in our minds. If you're having trouble uh, with pornography use and you're looking at pornograph- pornography regularly, well, don't use your computer or your iPad or your phone in your bedroom, right? Or in, a, or in another private place, right? Put, just leave it, leave it outside in the family room or something. Right? Or, or if you're really battling against lustful thoughts, don't go to places where there's going to be provocatively dressed people. Right? Just use, use, some, use some common sense. You understand what I'm saying? Just, it's not, we, don't need to, we don't need to super spiritualize everything. Sometimes it's just like, make wise choices that are good and don't put yourself in bad situations. So... Um, how Mel and I have worked it out is that I, I, I generally won't be alone with a woman in private unless love demands it and a better situation can't be arranged. Sometimes things happen and might make exceptions. In such cases, I'll either discuss it with Mel ahead of time or I'll let her know afterward the same day in order to keep a private interaction from becoming a secret interaction because secret interactions are not good. Right? Secrecy is where sin thrives. So... We just discuss it, right? So that's kind of how we work. That's kind of how we work it up. <clears throat> um, however, all of that being said, sanctification in the area of sexual purity, as well as in all other areas, runs much deeper than merely avoiding sinful actions. You can follow the Billy Graham rule to a T, and yet still have a heart that is lustful, wicked, sexually immoral. Sanctification runs deeper than merely avoiding sinful actions. And Paul says here that even the desires for sin are sinful. Pardon me, the desires for sexual immorality are sinful. 
In verse 3, it says, Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Again, I explained that earlier in the service. I think when he says covetousness here, he's still under the broad umbrella of sexual immorality and he's expanding the breadth so that we wouldn't merely think, okay, well, sexual actions are bad, but sexual thoughts are okay. Paul is even saying even covetousness, even wrong desires are sinful. And so Paul is in this section of verse 3 in, saying, in, in prohibiting covetousness, he's getting to the, even the desires for sexual immorality. We must avoid covetousness in the area of sexuality. And the Billy Graham or Mike Pence principle isn't going to help you here. What we need is, as Thomas Chalmers said, which I mentioned a few weeks ago, we need the expulsive power of a new affection. When we have affections in our hearts, pull in our hearts toward the wrong things, sexual immorality, namely in this context, what we need is a stronger pull in our hearts away from the wrong things. What we need is to desire something else more. C.S. Lewis famously said that God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're like children playing in mud puddles, not knowing what is meant by a vacation at the sea. When people think about Christianity, sometimes they think that basically what Christianity is, is reining in all your desires. You, most people desire money, we don't. Most people desire sex, we don't. Most people desire pleasure, we don't. Most people, many people think of Christianity something like that and that God finds our desires too strong. That God wishes we weren't so desirous if we just didn't have such strong passions and such strong affections, all would be well. But what C.S. Lewis is putting his finger on, and rightly so, is that the problem is not that our desires are too strong, but that our desires are for the wrong things, that we're satisfied too easily. We're satisfied with things like sexual immorality. Instead of, instead of seeing it as a trinket, a passing little thing that is of comparatively little value than God Himself. Oh, that we would know God, that we would commune with God. Why would I, why would I indulge in this thing that will impede my communion with God? You understand? This is what Lewis is putting his finger on here. That God is not at all trying to say, have less affections or have less passion. But God is saying, direct your affections to me, as it were. Direct your passions toward me, as it were. That we need to feel such strong affections for God that... Again, you've heard me quote this before, but it's just so good that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in His wonderful face and find that the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace, right? That we would see our Lord Jesus Christ, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and we would look at Him and say, Behold, We would behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We would behold Him. We would delight in Him. 
We will find sweetness in Him. We will find satisfaction in Him. Say, I don't want these other things. Take the world, but give me Jesus. We need the expulsive power of a new affection. We need something stronger in our hearts, pulling us in a Godward direction than those things in our hearts that pull us in an ungodly direction. How do we do that? Well, we contemplate the glory of God in Christ. We look over and over again at the Scriptures. We pour over every page. We pour over every word, every sentence, every paragraph. We read again and again and again that old, old story told so many ways in Scripture of God's lost people being found by Him. Of God's sinful people having their sins atoned for by Him. Of God's whoring people being loved and brought into intimacy with Him. We read over and over the things that the Scripture tells us of God and His glory and of His grace and of the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. We plead with the Holy Spirit to make these things felt realities in our hearts. We keep coming back over and over the way that a hungry man keeps coming back over and over to food until he's satisfied. We take hold of the Scriptures almost in an analogous way to the way that Jacob took hold of that man that he wrestled with and said, I will not let go until you bless me. Take hold of this book and wrestle with God. I will not let go until you bless me. I want godly affections. I want a heart that loves you and longs for you. I see this pull to sin in my life. We sang it earlier. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh God, I feel that in my heart, but I don't want to live like that. I don't want to stay there. I don't want to remain there. And so, oh Lord, I have taken hold of this book and I will not let go until you bless me. Oh God, show me wondrous things in your law as the psalmist wrote. Help me as Paul did to feel in my heart and to delight in Christ Jesus in such a way that I, like Him, could exalt. To live is Christ. Jesus is my life. We need the expulsive power of a new affection. And that just isn't going to happen by getting zapped one day. You're not just going to be not reading your Bible, not praying, carelessly going about your life, and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden you just find you've got new desires. Ordinarily, God works through means. If we want to have affections for Christ, we've got to contemplate Christ. And the way that we come to know Christ more deeply, who He is, what He's done for us, the loveliness of His person, the efficacy, the glory of His work, is not by 
new revelation of the Spirit or something like that, that we just sit and ask God to reveal new things to us. We go where Christ has already been revealed. So not only the actions of sin, of sexual immorality, are sinful, but also the desires for sin, for sexuality, pardon me, the desires for sexual immorality are sinful. Things like the Billy Graham rule might help us with the outward actions, just wise living, but we need the expulsive power of a new affection to deal with the desires of our hearts toward sexual immorality. Paul goes on to say that even the words and the associations pertaining to sexual immorality are sinful. He says, these things must not even be named among you. Don't even talk about these things amongst yourselves. Not not in the sense of don't talk about sexuality amongst yourselves. It's right and proper to have good, healthy conversations about right, godly expressions of sexuality. It's good that we would be able to learn uh, from the scriptures and discuss with one another what that looks like and bring correction to one another as necessary. And You know, for instance, for, for single men and women to be able to ask married men and women questions that they might have as they anticipate marriage. And this, it's good and right. It's not saying we need to be unbiblically prudish and just avoid the subject of sexuality, but sexual immorality should not even be named among us. Let all filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. And again, I think this is basically repetition from various angles so that we wouldn't just be like, well, I don't, I don't tell sexual jokes, but I do you know, have this kind of sexually immoral talk or vice versa. He's just saying across the board, sexually immoral talk doesn't belong among saints, among Christians. And then he says in verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. That is, those who indulge in sexual immorality. So, I've grouped that do not become partners with them together with let all filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking um, be gone from us for they're out of place. I put those two things together because so often those things go together in real life. Because, Because generally speaking, generally speaking, our sexually immoral conversations are not with our church friends, generally speaking. It's when we go to the workplace and there's workplace banter and people joking back and forth and this and that and making crude comments and so on and so forth. Generally, that's where we fall into sexually immoral talk. It's in the context of sexually immoral or associations with sexually immoral people. Right? And so what we need to do is do not become partners with them by indulging in that same kind of talk. We need, to, we need to cut all of that off all together. You may say, well, how do I do this? Well, again, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is what Jesus tells us. So we go back to the desires, and we go back to the expulsive power of a new affection, and we think about dealing with sin at a heart level, at a level of desires. That's certainly part and parcel of what you've got to do here. But on a simpler level, just don't. Don't indulge in it. Right? Don't, well, then my friends will think I'm weird. Yeah, yeah, they will think you're weird. Well, then, you know, then I, this or that. Well, yeah, that is going to happen. Yeah, we, we're strangers. We're pilgrims. We're foreigners. We're exiles here. Right? First Peter, he writes to the exiles. 
dispersed here and there. And some think that that means to the Jewish diaspora scattered uh, throughout the Roman Empire. But I think that he's just writing a general letter to Christians and saying the same way that the Jews were exiles in Babylon, that they were there, but they didn't really belong there, and they were kind of surrounded by a hostile culture. So are we Christians. We are exiles. Yeah, people are going to think you're strange. Yeah, people are going to lose respect or rapport with you or for you. Yeah, this is going to happen. Jesus warned us about all of these things. People are going to hate you. People are going to try to kill you. People are going to try to throw you in prison. This is what Jesus told us toward the end of John. I'm telling you all this so that when it happens, you're not going to be surprised. That is part and parcel of the normal Christian life. So, just don't. Right? When, in, in my previous workplace, before, before I became a pastor at Covenant Baptist Church, I had a year where I was working full-time outside the church. Um, when I left my previous church to come to Covenant, there was a year where I wasn't a pastor. And I was just being mentored by Chris, and, and uh, they were getting to know me and evaluating my sense of calling to ministry. And I was just working in uh, the marketplace, as it were. I was working in basically what you could think of as a factory. It was kind of an industrial setting or whatever. And these guys would joke around so crude all the time. Right? But, listen, we have as much a right to force our worldview upon them as they do upon us. You see, sometimes we're back on our heels. And we're like, well, I can't say that. It might offend them. Well, it offends me when you talk crudely. Right? So these guys would, be joke, would joke around. I just look at them and say, guys... The Bible says, let the marriage bed be held in honor by all. And they're like, <laughs> right? I'm like, well, seriously, guys, like, you know, cut it out. That's not, that's not right. You shouldn't be talking like that. Well, is that, is that, you know, how to win friends and influence peers? <laughs> no, probably not. But, but at the same time, let your light shine before men. Be salt and light. Yeah. Like what's, if the salt has lost its saltiness, what is it good for? Like, guys, like we, have a, we have a legitimate right to go into our workplaces and speak the truth, right? We should be winsome in our per- different personalities. Different people can get away with different things. But in our, per- in our own personalities, it's right for us to go into our workplaces and speak truth and challenge unbiblical and ungodly ideas. If they can go talk about this, that, and the next thing, we can come in and talk about Christ and the gospel and biblical truth and whatever, right? So on one hand... Again, it goes all the way down to the heart, right? The expulsive power of the new affection. But then again, like we don't need to overcomplicate when he says, stop talking in sexually immoral ways. How do I do that? Well, just don't. Refuse to do it, right? And, and refuse to participate in those kinds of conversations. <clears throat> so, we... Sorry, on that point, a couple more things I want to say. One is we've got to fear God more than we fear men. Ed Welch has a book called When People Are Big and God is Small. I still haven't read it yet, but it's about the fear of man. And this is a problem that makes us not want to just take a stand for what's right in our workplaces. We just are afraid of people. We just got to get that respect and that reverence and that awe of God where we would be like, listen, if, all, if there's six billion people in the world... You know, all five billion nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine. If all of them, if all of them were to be unchristian, non-Christian, if all the existing believers were to apostatize or whatever, would you follow Christ? 
though the whole world were against you? We have to answer yes. We have to answer yes. This is the call of Christ. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. This has to be the way. This is, this is the path of Christian discipleship. And in another analogy, just to drive the point home. Let's say that on your lunch break, instead of indulging in sexually immoral conversation, what if your workmates got together and said, let's steal a police car. Look, there's one parked over there. He left it running and he went in the building. Would you go along with them? Of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't want to associate yourself with them in that. You wouldn't want to become a partner with them in that. Because you fear the laws of the country. You fear breaking the laws of the country. You fear the government of Barbados. Why then would you want to associate yourself with your co-workers in breaking God's law? Why would you want to become partners with them in breaking God's law? It's because you don't fear breaking God's law and you don't fear God. Right? So just those are just a few things along that line. Let's now move on from that. So actions, desires, and words in association, sexual immorality. We've got we to get rid of all that. NIV translates this verses, Among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Any sexual immorality at all in any sphere, gone. This is what we've got to do as Christians. It's not proper for us Christians. It's out of place. It's not loving toward God, nor is it loving toward people. It's a breach of God's law on both accounts. It's not thankfulness. Look at the end of verse 4. Paul says, Instead, let there be thanksgiving. That might seem weird to us when he's just said, don't be sexually immoral, but instead give thanks. Well, here's why. Because sexuality is God's good gift. And sexual immorality is an abuse or a misuse of God's good gift. What's the opposite of misusing or abusing a gift? Being thankful for a gift. Using it properly. You buy a friend a guitar, and he uses it for firewood. Right? Your, uh, a wife buys a husband a brand new shirt. Next day she sees him painting the house wearing his new shirt. Well, I didn't want to get paint on my other clothes. Right? The absence of thankfulness leads to a misuse or an abuse, and vice versa, right? So, in that way, that's why Paul is talking about Thanksgiving in this section. It's idolatrous. Paul says in verse 5 that covetousness is idolatry. Right? And so again, this sexual immorality, this covetousness as pertaining to sexual immorality is idolatry. It's, the, it's a worship issue. It is making something else more ultimate in our lives than God. Namely, our own gratification or whatever. Right? Our own pleasure, our own comfort. So it's a worship issue. So it's not loving toward God. And it's not loving toward people. Sexual immorality is not loving toward people. It does treat other people like objects to be used rather than people to be enjoyed and loved. So you would take from somebody else something very valuable from them 
without giving what you ought to give to them. We, we're, we're only to benefit, as it were, from a sexual relationship in the context of that committed love where we're also giving ourselves to another person. You're only to sleep with somebody that you have married. It goes together, right? That commitment, that giving goes together with that tape taking, right? But in sexual immorality, we're taking from another person without giving what we ought to to them. Namely, love, commitment, care, protection, provision, etc. It's selfish. You don't care what happens to you. Look at, look at verse, or, or you don't care what happens to the other person. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Sexual immorality is like, I don't care if the wrath of God comes upon this person for this. I just want to be gratified sexually. I don't care. Whether it, whether it be a porn star, whether it be you know, your neighbor, whether it be a co-worker. I don't care what happens to them. I don't care if the wrath of God comes upon them. I have sexual desires that I want to be satisfied. And I don't care what happens. It's selfish. It's like a drunk driver getting in his car, not caring what happens to the people around him as he drives drunk. More than that, it's like sex, the sexually immoral are like drunk drivers inviting others to get into the car. Because we're inviting other people to participate with us in something that brings and incurs the wrath of God. And so it is not loving either toward God or toward people, which is why it's improper among saints. Because we are to be those who love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind and love our neighbors as ourselves. So, saints ought to be sexually pure, free from sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. And Paul's assumption is that genuine saints will be sexually pure, free from sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Therefore, this passage provides a diagnostic test to know whether you are a saint. Now, as a caveat before we proceed... Paul is assuming that the temptation to sexual immorality is real for Christians. And even that Christians might actually be involved in sexual immorality to some extent. Hence the instruction. If Paul's, if Paul's assumption was this isn't even an issue for these guys because they're Christians, he wouldn't have said it. So if you have ever sinned sexually, or if you do still sin sexually from time to time, it does not necessarily mean that you are not a Christian. However, Paul is saying something here. Look at verse, verses 5 and 6. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, you may be sure of this that that person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul is saying something here. We don't want to explain away the force of that, what he just said. So Paul, Paul must be assuming here that those who are habitually indulging in sexual immorality are not Christians. 
Hence the pronouncement of God's wrath towards those who practice such things. So the implications of this are twofold. If you would consider yourself a Christian, and yet you're indulging regularly in sexual immorality of any sort, you really need to repent. You must not continue. You cannot continue in sexual immorality and claim to be a Christian. Either you will prove to have been never truly converted, you will prove to be an instance of false conversion, and you will perish in hell for your sin, or you will repent, and you'll, be, you'll begin making some headway against this sin, and turning the corner on this sin, and gaining some victory on this sin. But you cannot stay where you are, habitually indulging in sin, and claim to be a Christian. In that sense, those two things are incompatible. Secondly, if you would consider yourself a Christian, and yet you're indulging regularly in sexual immorality of any sort, and you do not care to repent, if this warning seems prudish to you, or unnecessary, or if even now you're inwardly justifying your sin and planning to continue in it, you really probably are not a Christian. Those would be very bad and very unhealthy signs. So, we all need to hear this warning as we think about living sexually pure lives. This warning that the sexually immoral, impure, and covetous have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In Deuteronomy we read, Woe to him who, hearing the words of this law, blesses himself in his heart and says, I will be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. See, we can bless ourselves and tell ourselves that we have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Even while we walk in sexual immorality. But the Bible says otherwise. So we need to hear that. We need to hear that on account of these things, the wrath of God comes. The wrath of God is real. God is gracious. God is patient. God is forbearing. God has sent Christ Jesus into the world to give His life as an atonement for sinners. And He has commanded that all of Christ's people go out and preach that message. That whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus assures us from His own lips that whoever comes to Me I will never cast out. This is the message that we're entrusted with as we go to the unbelieving world. But even as we go with that message to this unbelieving world, we also need to go with the other side of that message, that God's wrath is real and there will be a day when He's no longer dealing patiently, when He's no longer dealing graciously with those outside of Christ, when He comes to judge the world in strict justice, strict righteousness, when His wrath will be outpoured upon all the unrepentant who have refused to trust in Christ Jesus who have refused to come in to Him in faith and rest their souls in Him for salvation. On account of these things, sin in general, specifically this morning, sexual immorality, on account of these things, the wrath of God comes. we got to take that very seriously and not bless ourselves in our hearts saying that we will be safe 
though we walk in the stubbornness of our heart. If we are really Christians, we've got to deal with this sin. We've got to repent of it and we've got to walk in holiness in this area. In a time and place when sexual promiscuity is the norm rather than the exception. In which pornography use is normalized. In which having another sexual partner on the side is normalized. Where kadumit is normalized. And so on. In such a time and place... It will be difficult to live sexually pure lives all the way down to the desires of our hearts and the conversations that we participate in. It will be hard. However, in such a time and place, how crucial it will be, it is, pardon me, how crucial it is to be diligent and watchful in this area. To be careful to ensure that we do live sexually pure lives all the way down to the desires of our hearts and the conversations we participate in. How crucial that is. Viewed more positively, what an opportunity we have as a church to live in a visibly countercultural way, to demonstrate to those around us a better way. What an opportunity we have to demonstrate before watching unbelievers what God-oriented singleness looks like, what God-oriented marriage looks like, to demonstrate what it looks like to find Jesus fairer than the fairest of 10,000, to find communion with the indwelling Holy Spirit satisfying, to find the love of the Father soul-stirring and compelling, to demonstrate to the watching world what it looks like to long for eternal joys, better and higher and more lasting things, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, and thus to demonstrate to the watching world what faithful marriages look like, how beautiful and good sexual intimacy within the bounds of marriage can be. To demonstrate before watching unbelievers what thankfulness to God for His good gift of sexuality looks like. And thus what God-centered sexuality looks like. This is what we are called to as Christians. This is what is, this is, what is proper among saints.